Welcome back to Beyond Well. I'm Sheila Hamilton, and this is a program for people who want to learn more about our interior lives. And many of you who know my backstory know how interested I am in suicide prevention. But what if it would be possible to use data-driven insight to predict and possibly prevent suicide attempts? Dr. Jessica Chadhury, Medical Director for Behavioral Health at Carillon and a psychiatrist by training, says that knowing who is at risk means you can reach out connect with them, and give them support. Dr. Chattery, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I think that many people would be surprised to learn that there are powerful risk factors at play in suicide attempts. Could you talk about some of those, please? Um, I'd be happy to, and thank you again for the opportunity. What we have done in an effort to really respond to the national and devastating rising trend of suicide, particularly in adolescents and young adults, is use a predictive modeling or um, a predictive analytics algorithm, which really assesses potential risk factors. So risk factors such as those uh, people that may have had prior instances of care with behavioral health, inpatient hospitalizations, or emergency room visits, or those people that may be using substances, or those people that have certain pharmacy utilization of medications. Um, And then also, there are some medical factors that go into this that we found in our data analysis that that may also be increasing the risk. For example, pain-related issues, particularly headaches and asthma, which is very interesting. And there may be some social driver issues that are coming into play there. So what we found is that if we can risk stratify uh, people, particularly those that maybe had a prior suicide attempt, which is a huge risk factor in having another one, and we can provide outreach early and prevent either a subsequent suicide attempt or a first suicide attempt for these people that are at high risk, we can really help potentially change the trajectory for some of these individuals. How do the health insurance claims actually inform those risk factors? For instance, how far do you go back in a person's history? How long do people have to be in care? I'm I'm really interested in some of the specifics. Well, we look back two years. We don't go much farther than that because things could have changed for people over the years. For example, somebody who maybe had some care episodes when they were younger, maybe they didn't need them as they grew older. But we do do a 24-month look back. And that helps inform those that may be at more acute risk as well. While the data is based in part on claims data, it's really that predictive modeling that helps to identify these people given all of these different variables. And when you contact the person and say, we have noticed that this is your history, would you like some support? What was the response that people gave you? So that, that's a great question. And we've spent a lot of time thinking about how to approach members and their families with this kind of sensitive issue. 
particularly for the young people, those people that are under the age of 18, we do involve their families or their adult caregivers because we see this as a team-based approach. But we use sensitive language. Um, We think of mental health issues as physical health issues are thought of as well, that there are certain conditions that people are at high risk for, and we want to try to offer support and help before that disease process starts to progress more down the road. So we're trying to intervene earlier, and we've developed some language around that and really how to approach this with the greatest sensitivity in mind. What kind of care team is most effective when someone says, yes, I actually have been considering suicide and I could really use the help? What we have found is that, you know, members, once they do engage with us, they are committed to engaging and being part of this program. And what the program offers, it's a telephonic case management program that has case managers that provide the outreach. But then we also have peer wellness and recovery specialists that really have some lived experience with mental health and these types of issues around mental health. Now we talk about how to offer supportive messages around managing whole health, including things like grounding techniques for stress and anxiety management, Mm. how to differentiate healthy versus unhealthy relationships, how to really create a support system, address needs around social drivers of health. And I think one really important piece in all of this is also how to better be your own health advocate Mm. and really advocate for your needs because that can get very, very challenging and complex, um, Mm. particularly for people that have unfamiliarity with the overall healthcare system. I also read that you really encourage people to adopt a safety plan. Would you help our listeners understand why? Absolutely. We definitely do that. We definitely help create a safety plan. And we're also objectively measuring rates of depression and anxiety through objective scales. Let me give you an example that I think might help to illustrate this question a little bit more. Um, I'm going to change the name uh, for the sake of anonymity. We had one member, a 14-year-old transgender male who we'll call Nate. He was really struggling with depression and anxiety and suicidal ideation and had the diagnosis of depression and anxiety. He had thoughts of self-harm that were uh, pretty constant. And at times he was acting in a risky and impulsive way. Mm. He was most negatively impacted by the lack of a relationship with his father. Mm. What our team offered to Nate and his family was not only education around depression and anxiety and coping skills, but creating a safety plan of what to do when Nate felt unsafe, who to call, who to outreach. And we do provide 24-7 telephonic support. We also gave a list of in-network resources, mental health providers that could also help him get connected to services. And Nate, at the end of the program, described feeling more hopeful, had a better family dynamic with his mom, and how to talk with her about the role of not having his father involved, what that really meant for him. Mm. 
And he felt more empowered and he had a safety plan on how to address suicidal ideation. So he didn't end up in a higher level of care in an emergency room, in an inpatient unit. And I think something like that and just empowering patients, especially young people, understand that there could be an alternative is really powerful. You know, I think one of the biggest misconceptions around the suicide thought is that people who have suicidal ideation go on to committing. There's an awful lot of people who have ideation and have learned skills to be able to work with these thoughts. Can you describe some of the things that people who are plagued with ideation do to stay alive? Absolutely. And if there's any one thing that anyone listening to this takes away from this whole podcast, I would suggest that it's the following. The greatest myth out there is that talking about suicide leads to suicide. Mm -hmm. Um, That is absolutely untrue, fundamentally and categorically untrue. Talking about suicide, the thoughts that people are having or addressing their behaviors, because there is something that's called non-suicidal self-injury when people may hurt themselves, but it's not because they're necessarily trying to end their lives. They may be hurting themselves for other reasons, either to have a sense of control or to change the way they might be feeling pain from a mental pain to more of a physical pain. If you're able to, one, recognize and understand that there could be something going on, that's a little bit different or unusual for that person. And you talk to them about it and you get them connected to the right resources and stay on that journey with them. That might really make a huge difference for that person. Suicide can certainly be an impulsive act, Mm -hmm. but there can also be some signs that are that are telling or some risk factors. And that that's really what we're trying to understand and get at through this program and how we're, we're trying to provide outreach to people that really may be at greatest risk. If you just joined us, we're talking about suicide prevention and a new model that uses data analytics to determine who might be at risk and then offer extra support with Dr. Jessica Chaudhary. I know that there is an increase in suicide attempts after people go into inpatient care, which I've always found startling. Um, Can you talk about the reasons that occurs and why people who might have just started on medication begin feeling enough energy to actually complete the act? Yeah, and you may have partially answered that. Um, That can certainly happen. So when people do get treatment for let's say, depression or depressive episodes, they may actually start to feel a little bit better, right? And they may be able to get more organized in their thoughts or feeling the energy that you just talked about to actually go through with something that's harmful. Mm -hmm. Of course, that's not the likely scenario, but it can happen. And what we're hoping is that when there are episodes of care, such as through an inpatient hospitalization, if it comes to that, 
that people also understand that there are alternatives to cope with those thoughts. There are other resources. There are other sorts of therapeutic modalities that could really be helpful to people. And we're hoping that that education and breaking down the stigma that still exists, that that you can talk about mental health issues that other people have gone through these kinds of issues and it's okay to feel the ways that you might be feeling and helping to start to break down that stigma mm-hmm. and give people some of that hope will will help give them some other choices. Uh, Dr. Chaudhary, one of the really interesting things that I have been watching is the rising rate of adolescent suicide. Do you have your own set of beliefs around why we're seeing this increase in suicide in adolescents? So suicide rates in um, adolescents and young adults, rates have increased more than 56% over the last two decades. Um, so this is preceding the pandemic. Mm-hmm. But let's talk about why is this happening? And then let's talk about the role of social media in all of this. As a starting point, you have to understand that young people in particular are vulnerable to high risk and impulsive behaviors. Part of this is because developmentally, their judgment and decision-making skills are still being developed. The brain's executive control center, which is the prefrontal cortex, doesn't fully develop until the mid-20s. And that makes people much more impulsive, much less understanding of what the risks of some of their actions are. And so that one makes them vulnerable. Socially, younger people may not have some of those same protective factors. They may not be as connected to others. They may be managing the expectations of older adults. They may be held back more by stigma of seeking out mental health care. And they may actually be quite reliant on adults to actually really seek out the treatment that they need. And if somebody doesn't have that support, it makes it much more difficult to actually get the support that they need. The other thing I would say about young people is that they are really trying to take on more and more, and they are trying to be strong or come across as strong. And they may not show some of the outward signs that they need help because they're really trying to rely on themselves. You know, I think that makes them really vulnerable Mm -hmm. as well. Then, you know, you've got the pandemic, you know, for young people in particular, I think created more of a sense of isolation because young people were away from their activities, from their peer groups, from their friends and teachers. I think the silver lining in the pandemic is that more people became aware of how important mental health is. And there was some, I think, increased access through telemedicine. So those are some of the issues that the pandemic raised. But then I I also want to talk about social media Mm -hmm. and youth mental health. The Surgeon General, he issued an advisory on the impact of social media in May of 2023. And in that advisory, he outlined that there are certainly both positive and negative impacts of social media. Mm -hmm. 
let's start with the positive for a moment. The positive is that it gives people sort of an online connection to people who may identify with them in some ways, and it gives them the ability to create that friendship or that dynamic in an online forum that they may not otherwise get. But there are potential harms of social media. And that's why I think it's really important as adults or as caregivers that there are barriers or limits set around the use of social media. So there was a study that found that Adolescents who spend more than three hours a day on social media face double the risk of experiencing poor mental health outcomes, including depression and anxiety. And as of a couple of years ago, eighth and 10th graders are spending about an average of three and a half hours a day. Young girls have been found to be particularly vulnerable because of issues around body image and being the victims of cyberbullying and, and, and eating concerns. Um, so this becomes particularly important for all adolescents and young people. And then the other thing I would just add to all of this is the use of social media also results often in poor sleep because mm-hmm. people or children are taking these devices to bed with them. And I just can't underscore enough how important it is for young people to get a good night of sleep and rest because that helps everything. It helps their brain development. It helps with their decision making. It helps them have more tolerance to deal with the issues that are coming up through the day. So currently, the suicide prevention program is available in select markets in our commercial and government business divisions. At this point, we have engaged with around 4,200 members, and we are continuing to try to expand. So we are trying to reach other markets within, for example, government business. We're trying to um, expand to our national accounts. Um, And then also we're expanding in other ways. We found that those people that had engaged with the program post-engagement had a slight uptick Mm. in the rates of of suicide attempts again. And so we created an aftercare program for an additional six months of time where we outreach at select intervals to say, look, we're still here. We're still here to give you resources and offer support in an effort to try to bring those numbers down again. Our goal is to bring this program to as many people as we possibly can and continue to try to really make a difference for people. That's wonderful. I have loved this conversation with you and I wish you all the best in expanding the program and reaching more people who could use the extra support. We will have links to Dr. Chaudhuri's study as well as the most recent New York Times report on youth mental health and suicide prevention. If you're interested, follow us at Beyond Well Media. Thanks again for joining us. 